You're listening to the Voices for Nature podcast. Cocktails, controversy and conservation. Brought to you by the Nature Conservation Council. And here are your hosts, Chris Gambian and Jackie Mumford. G'day, Happy New Year and welcome to Cocktails, Controversy and Conservation for 2021. Um, I'm Jackie, the Organising Director here at NCC, um, and it's great to have you back for another year, so thanks for joining us. Uh, we have something a little bit different tonight, and for the next two weeks of Cocktails, we'll be bringing you our summer series, which is a pre-record that Chris and I did on our trip out west in November last year, when we drove to the Pilliga and then along the Barker River, talking to all different users uh, along the river about water licences and the government's management of the Darling Barker. I also have some exciting news that we've turned cocktails, controversy and conservation into a podcast called Voices for Nature. If you jump onto Spotify and Apple Podcasts and search for Voices for Nature, uh, you can find us um, and listen to all the, all the sessions of, of cocktails that we've done from the last year. And if you can, um, subscribe and rate us so that we can reach more people um, with, with this series. Um, and also, as always, please head along to nature.org.au slash donate. Um, it's thanks to the support of people just like you that we're able to do this work. So it really does mean the world um, for you to make a donation to us. And without further ado, tonight's cocktails um, is, is, was recorded uh, at Kalara Station. Chris and I spoke to Justin McClure and Stuart Lever. Uh, who are graziers along the river. And I hope you get as much out of hearing from them as I did. G'day, so we're here in Burke in northwestern New South Wales on the lands of the Barkindji and Nemba people on the Darling River at the Burke Weir. So this weir is critically important to the whole river system really. Uh, how much water spills over the edge uh, determines things like pumping limits but it also most importantly determines how much water there just is in the river um, available to the towns along the river, any kind of farming or irrigation and most importantly of course to just keeping it as a river and keeping it flowing and making sure that nature continues to thrive down the river. So it's really important, just this morning the water stopped spilling over the edge, so this is bad news really for um, the rest of summer. Where we're standing right here, Jackie, like in March, this, yeah, this, would have this all was been underwater. underwater. So um, you can see the sort of railing just in the background there, um, the water level was right up to the railing. So we're here with Stuart from Yathonga Station, which is how far away? Down, you flew here, yeah, so... It's about a quarter of an hour. Quarter of an hour, what, in a plane? Yep. Okay, so how many k's is that? 40. 40 k's. It's not a bad way to get around? Yeah, it makes right. Oh, well, just depending on how quick you get. I'll answer that when I get home. And Justin from Kalara Station. We're, we're at Kalara Station. This is the Darling River just behind us here. And uh, we've stayed the night. And... Uh, uh, Justin and Stuart have agreed to have a chat to us about some of the issues with the river and, uh, and water in the river. But just to start, um, what do you do here? Tell us, tell us about your, your properties, um, guys. Well, mine's fairly basic. One, I've just got uh, Merino 
sheep, um, you know, for wool, and um, a few cattle. And how long have you been doing that? 1860, when we first arrived. Right. Well, your family's been here since 1860. 63 or something, isn't it? I can't. 63 or 1863 or 1866 or something. Jeez. Yeah. So you know the place reasonably well. You're getting to know it, yeah. <laughs> Nearly called a local now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, Justin? Yeah, look, um, we're similar. Uh, we're, we're graziers. We run, we run animals. Um, we uh, used to grow wool sheep. Um, 20 years ago and have done for the, for the 100 years before that. Uh, we've made a transition into, uh, into meat sheep uh, and, and goats and um, so we, uh, we do grazing, we, uh, we grow a few opportunity crops. Um, so just for people, most of the people watching this will be in Sydney, won't necessarily know what an opportunity crop, crop is. Okay, well, we live on the floodplain and uh, the beautiful river behind us. Uh, on average floods every five years and um, when the water comes up and goes across our floodplains it then recedes and uh, therefore we may grow a crop one year in five. So we take advantage of, uh, of the natural flooding regime and we'll plant um, cereals onto the floodplain and, uh, and, and grow, grow crops, eating for food, um, yeah, that's basically what we do. Yeah, right. And, uh the rest of the time, what are you what are you grazing? We graze sheep. Yep. Um, we graze meat sheep, and um, yeah, we have uh, sheep for for meat to for people to eat. Yeah, right. Um, and so you were saying yesterday that the the lamb here is organic. Um, how did you come to be an organic uh, lamb farmer? Look, everything we do is organic, um, and uh, this land is naturally naturally organic. Uh, our low densities of stock uh, mean that uh, our animals aren't confined, they're free range and uh, our animals have got 10 acres per animal to live on. So there's not the intensive pressure and hence we haven't got the uh, internal and external parasites that mm. farmers in other areas have. So it's very easy for us to be organic. And it's desirable for us to be organic. Uh, and there's a premium for being organic. So we've got the best worlds here. So we produce organic lamb. Uh, we produce organic, organic grain mm. uh, for, for bread and predominantly oats. Yep. Um, oats is our, is our staple crop. But we may only grow a crop one year in five. And you mentioned before about when you were talking about the opportunity crops, about um, you know when it floods and being on a floodplain. I also know that you're with the Australian Floodplain Association. Can you just tell us a little bit about floodplain harvesting and what that what that is? We live on the floodplain. What what you see in our, our wide brown land is a is a floodplain that that over the last million years or whatever. This country floods naturally and has, has flooded naturally from inflows right up the river. Um, it can rain at Toowoomba, it can rain at Bathurst, and all that water goes past our front door. So traditionally, when it rains everywhere, our river rises, and, and that's what it is, it's an event river. Mm. But it rises up to the top of the banks and it floods thousands of acres 
on our flow plane. So our flows have reduced over the last 40 years by up to 800% in the peak mm. summer months, which is December, January, February, when our small communities need water. Yeah. So floodplain harvesting and any extraction upstream has an impact on, on what water's in our river outside here. Yeah, right. We've already lost that water. We've already lost that water and we know we're not ever going to recreate the wheel to, to, to roll back time. But what we really need to do is to maintain these small pulse flows which first of all satisfy the, the communities, the people who, who live and breathe and, and have lived in this country for hundreds and thousands of years. And secondly, these pulse flows add sustenance to the environment and, and, and keep the whole ecosystem ticking along. You've seen disasters here in the last two years downstream, and that is all to do with drought first, but excessive diversion at times. So management is the key. Yeah. So just, um, I don't know if you've caught up with this news, but just last night in the upper house in New South Wales, um, a bill was defeated that would have made floodplain harvesting normalised. Um, what's your take on that issue at the moment and, and what it, what, what's government not getting right on that issue? Uh, what, what they're not getting right on, the, uh, on, on floodplain harvesting is, uh, is that the upstream valleys contribute water to the Barwon Darling and all these valleys have water sharing plans. But the major problem is these water sharing plans don't talk to each other. They are like isolated little kingdoms and they look after themselves 100% and they have uh, a poor outlook on sharing water. Mm. Their view is that uh, the resource is mine while I have it and why should I share that with anyone else? And until these water sharing plans talk to each other and there's a global overarching body which we're supposed to have, which is the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, and that body has the power to force different areas to allow the keyword connectivity and connectivity of these low pulse, low pulse flows is imperative to the, to the very survival of uh, our communities, the environment, and the way of life that we've we've lived for the last 150 years. Yeah, Stuart, what do you reckon? Well, I totally agree with Justin about um, when it comes. There's something that I don't understand, and I suppose the best way I can put it is that I was at a wedding in Walgett about three or four weeks ago, and some little pompous so-and-so came up to me. We were talking all sorts of th things, but water was off the, the agenda. This is, a, you know. And um, the comment was, um, oh, only peasants live below Burke. Right. Right. Which I normally I would react, but you know, yeah. To. But that's what we're dealing with, and with that sort of an attitude, and government's got managing that water has that ad attitude that the ex the the um, rely you know, the the political side of it is very simply is that we need this corporatisation of the river, mm -hmm. yeah. You know, and that is completely and utterly wrong, as we've seen. You know, and there's report after report after report, and I don't know how many more 
right? And floodplain harvesting is just another one, right? That it's not measured, right? There are structures there that shouldn't be that are impeding, you know, water overland flows from getting into the um, into the river. And I think, um, and I've shown people uh, a little place down there which you can nearly see again now. It used to be just hard bedrock. Now it's got three foot of silt in it. Now that's just lack of flow. Now I know drought and all that sort of stuff is, but shouldn't we? You know, it's a bit like us as graziers when things get dry. We 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 have to take a remedial action. And the sooner you do it, the better. So you either you start feeding early and whatever else, or you sell. Right. So the bucket of water is no longer there. Right. It's nothing like it was 30 years ago. Right. But there has been, and in the meantime, there's been, and I'll take my hat off to the you know the irrigation industry in this one. They're, they're, the, the inroads they've made into development of crops and you know, high yielding stuff and everything else. Um, I, why do they have, you know, you know, why, why is it that the government are encouraging, outside, well I believe to be outside the law, encouraging this over extraction of, you know, of everything above the Barwon Darling? Mm. Because we only get 3% of the water natural runoff, roughly 3%. The rest of it's got to be bought in. But there's this government encouraging this sort of stuff now. Is it because, um, oh dear, we're in trouble, but we've got to pay for it? Is it that? Because there'd be a lot of dollars tied up in it. Um, or is it a political thing? Or do they actually believe in they're doing the right thing? Mm. Right? And we know they're not doing the right thing. You know, and there's a priority of water use and all that sort of stuff, you know, and, and, and extraction comes down five or six. And that's also all extractions. But it's up the top. Government put it up the top. And that sort of stuff I don't understand. This, to me, it's just an illegal use. Um, and this is a resource. It's not a commodity. It is a resource. And they need to treat it that way. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned the changes that you've seen in 30 years, you know, over the last sort of 30 years. You know, you're both from families that have, you know, been here for over 100 years. Um, what are some of the changes that you've seen more recently with the river and with those changes in management, the lack of connectivity and things like that that you're talking about? Well, no flows. It's, yeah. yeah. Like you get one every, what, seven or eight, ten years, maybe? Mm. Yeah. So we cop them about two a year. Yeah, the, the, the whole dynamics, the, um, the, uh, the event flows just aren't happening. Um, and the frequency, the frequency of flows and the duration of flows just aren't there. And statistically, it's clear as crystal. They're just not happening, and and that can be blamed on a lot of things. And uh, our climate change is definitely having an influence. Uh, dams in the headwaters are definitely having an influence. Modern farming practices are to uh, to trap water and for water to infiltrate into the subsoil to grow. Um, all of these policies have been encouraged by government to manage the system. We're the we're the losers here. The Darling is a loser, and it's um, a loser for those reasons. And the breakdown, the change is, is there. It's just been highlighted by, as, as Stuart said, multiple scientific reports uh, uh, put forward or uh, commissioned by government. The, the government has commissioned multiple reports, the NRC report, the Tessie report, um, and they all are saying the same thing. And I just ask the question, why aren't government acting upon their own commission reports which are highlighting a major anomaly in, in, in the flows in our iconic rivers? And that there is n no bigger effect 
of diversion of water to, to an extreme than the disaster in Saint Menindi and the disasters in the in the in the in the bar and Darling itself. I'd go further to to, to say that the um, that that actual management of water, right? It's it's the gross mismanagement of water. You know, people are only allowed to do what the government tells them to do, give or take. Okay. In this case, you could say there's you know, they've gone above and beyond that. Let somebody else work that out. But government haven't managed, you know, and that is the issue. Now, more political persuasions are guilty of it, right? And I don't understand why they just can't look at it for what it is. They don't need multiple reports to, to tell them, you know. They've been told more ways than one, you know. They probably put it in braille for them just in case, you know, they're going to turn a blind eye to it, you know, just to make them understand. But they still take no notice. And that, to me, becomes the major issue we've got. And everybody else is left high and dry on the bank yep. because of it. Yep. 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 You know, like... <clears throat> The irrigators up there, um, this is not a, you know, it's, it, technically it's not about them, okay? Um, it's about government allowing mm. the, you know, the mad management of a resource. And that's what it's all about and that's what we need to change. If we don't change that, right, we, you know, we're in for a long hard ride, right? And we're not going to give up, we'll still you know, we'll keep pounding away in 20 years time. Yeah. We hope good sense will prevail between them because we haven't got 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. Is one of the problems that there are five governments in charge of this? Yes, yes. and no. Yes and no. It's, uh, yeah, look, it's, it, it's policy failure at a high level. And um, when you talk about policy failure and you talk about uh, you know, intergovernments and, uh, and government agreements, that can be rectified. But as we know, it takes a major a constitutional change to uh, to take water away, the power of managing water away from the states. Um, so yes, to answer your question, yeah, that's a definite problem. So we need a unified policy, which the Murray-Darling Basin Authority attempted to do. But in the, in the eight years or seven years it's been in operation, it's proved to be ineffective. And the, the, the single governments uh, are looking after their own interests as they do. It's a bit like um, you know, Australia is the United Nation, but unfortunately the Constitution doesn't allow federal overarching control of water. Mm -hmm. So it's something we need to look at. Just um, can you explain the licensing regime? So I think a lot of people I think a lot of people find water, particularly in the Murray-Darling Basin, a very complicated area. Um, and it is, there's no doubt that it's complicated, but in some ways I feel like the issues are not that complicated, like the, the problem is not that complicated in that there's just not, there's water that needs to be shared and it's not being shared properly. But can you just explain the, the sort of licensing regime and how that stuff works? Well, Chris, I agree, and Justin and I have had this um, for, for years, because I don't think it's that complicated. If you obey the law, the legislation as it stands, a lot of this will go away. Right. right? And... and Good sense would prevail, and it's the only whatever it is, this, the mon you now the minor side of it that you'd end up fixing up. But as it stands at the moment, it's all been manipulated, right? And then, you know, nothing agrees with each other, and you know, everybody can go and do whatever they like, and you know, don't give a stuff about the bloke downstream of them, you know. And, yeah. So, th and that's my my simple. I know it's simple, and, you know, I'm simplifying, but by the law as it stands, a lot of it will go away. Yeah, right. 
Do you agree with that, Justin? Look, I think the priority of water, or the hierarchy of water use is very, very clear. But um, unfortunately, as the individual states, the individual kingdoms within states don't adhere to the law. Human greed is such that um, if I've got the water and I control the high ground, I can regulate who gets the next bit down. So we've got to share this resource. And unfortunately, it's going to take a big stick approach to make people share this resource. For every winner, there's got to be a loser. And we've seen our equity been transferred upstream over the last 40 years. We had vibrant communities, and I'll take Menindi as a prime example, um, you know, citrus, uh, you know, grapes, grapes. Um, and potentially uh, you know, a, a first market provider. Um, ideal dry climate for growing stone fruits, table grapes, citrus, and it's all been taken away. And that equity has been transferred up the stream. And um, we need someone to take control, with the power to take control, the big stick approach, and to hand water out, to regulate water, and to ensure that people play the game only take their equity to share. So the hierarchy of water use is clearly spelled out in law. Just explain that for people who don't know. The priority of water use uh, in, in, in federal law and in state law is, uh, is directed to the highest, the first user is supposed to be the environment. The second user is the mum and dad farmers and the communities that, uh, that live and work this river. At the bottom of this, this totem is irrigation. And unfortunately, this has all been turned on its head for one reason or another, by political pressure. And it's, uh, it's a key point. The hierarchy of, of water use is clearly spelled out. The law puts it out there in black and white. But it's being ignored. And governments, have, uh, through, through uh, poor policy, have not followed this through or enforced it. So we have, this, sounds like we know what, what the answer is to, to this sort of management issue, but, you know, what's missing is political will. For anyone watching this who lives in Sydney and, you know, they're, they're hearing your story, they're really concerned about what's going on with the river, um, you know, what should they do? Like, can they head down to Macquarie Street and meet with the minister or, you know, what, what would you encourage people to do? Look, look, God look, in, yeah, look God. the question of, of, for those living in Sydney is that um, they walk out their front door every morning, right, and the minute they do that, and even in their own house, but the minute they do that, there's certain uh, laws they've got to uphold, right, to be able to get to work, go to work, come back, okay? Government don't seem to do that. So why make legislation if it's not going to be uh, police for want of a word, and it's not going to be followed through? So the hierarchy of water use is a typical example of that. Right, so whether it's just to make us feel good, right? Well, it doesn't because they don't do anything with it. Okay, so it's just a basic, you know, law and order thing. That's for starters, and that's where this water thing needs to come back to. Right, follow the legislation. And those people on the eastern seaboard who are, who are watching, they need to be getting contact with their local member, and they need to express that we need a change. We need to develop a political will to uh, 
to solve this issue for all Australians, not for those who, uh, who live at the top of the water source. They're making two, look, I don't know, they're making two classes of people out of this, right? And that's sad. There's no need for it, you know, like... Yeah, when it comes to a natural resource as well, like it should, yeah, yeah. should be equitable. So the sense of entitlement, and one thing I would implore before I get on the sense of entitlement, one thing I would implore those living in the eastern seaboard is be, um, please don't go and start, you know, hanging irrigators from the roof, you know. It, it's not what it's about. And it's really important, you know, what we'd like to see is the, the, the old family farm come back into, into play because I think you'd all agree that the vast majority of family farms um, employ locals, they shop locally. Um, they are usually a lot more responsible uh, with land use, um, you know, um, and all those sorts of things. So it's really important that, you know, they don't single out irrigators, for want of a word, and they start, you know, yelling from the print, you know, they ought to be, you know, capital punishment should, should come back in because it's not what it's about. <clears throat> but they also need to drop their sense of entitlement to this. And that's government have enabled them to do that. Mm. Yeah. Right? So we, we, what's the common nom denominator of our this? It's government. Mm. It is the management that government has portrayed. Right? And one of my biggest thing is you don't know from government one, way, one time, one day from another what they're thinking about it all. You know, we can see an easy fix to it. Yeah. Some of it's going to take time to do. Right? It can't happen overnight. It just can't. Yeah. Right? But it's got to start, and once you do that, but the, as Jackie said, the, the political will to do it is just not there. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what the people in the eastern seaboard need to change. You know, they need to remind ministers of the, ministers of the Crown, or, you know, and they need to be following the law. Yeah. Government policy has, um, and their plan has been to uh, you know, direct water to the highest value. And um, what we've seen here is that the area that the collateral damage is what's happening. They've basically wiped wiped the Barwon Darling and the Darling itself. Um, and as a result of poor policy and the SDL adjustment, the, bar, the Dar Barwon Darling has been used to collateral damage for other people's gain. So the people out here aren't going to put up with it. But we need the help of the people in the cities. That we need the help of the people on the eastern seaboard. Nearly, nearly, nearly 1,400 kilometres from from, from Mungandai to uh, to to Wentworth is the area we're talking about. Here. This area has been ticketed as the the, uh, the loser in this argument. It's Menindee Lakes, it's communities of Perncary, Menindee. Wilcannia, Tilpot Lough, and Burke to a degree, through to Bawarana, Tolerantabri. These areas are the result of poor policy and it will lead to the, the derogation derangement of nearly 1,400 kilometres of iconic and you see it in the towns, don't you? Like, you know, we, we were at Bawarana a couple of nights ago, um, last night, no, night before last. Burke yesterday. Burke yesterday. Uh, we're going to Wilcannia this afternoon. You know, there is a bit of consistency with what you see, which is these towns that have sort of got faded glory. You know, you could, you could tell that they were the lifeblood of the country, you know, a century ago, and it's so much part of Australian identity. 
Um, you know, this region is at the heart of the sort of Australian story, um, but it seems like we're just letting it sort of perish and disappear. Well, as far as Burke goes, um, Burke can't handle any more booms and busts the way it is because it'll end up being a welfare town, and that's sad. Okay, but if they, you know, in, in my opinion, if they throttle back and had a, you know, and they're going to miss out every now and again, I, you know, I know that, but, and I'm just using hypothetical figures. Say there's 30,000 acres of cotton um, in Burke. Say, for example, they throttle that back to, say, 15,000. I think you would get an absolute steady, you know, as it can be, right, and it would all, you know, the people of the town of Burke, okay? Therefore, you're going to get a few more businesses and you're going to go in there, okay? There's bugger all young people now, they're all clearing out, yep. you know, and you can't have that anymore. Yep. But, and this is a direct result on government management. So they pour millions and millions of dollars into towns like Burke and Bree and everything else. They're forgetting one thing. They don't add water to it. You can't make things grow without water. Yep. Right? And that's what, you know, they know it. But they're going to, they're quite willing to sweep all that under the carpet, right? For what? For corporatisation of the river. Yeah. You know, it's, it's no sense involved in it. You know, it's just political. Yeah. So you want to talk about A-class licences a bit? A-class licences are the other licences that uh, let people extract water at, uh, at the lowest level. Um, these low flows are the lifeblood of the river in that um, these flows come regularly well, they should come regularly and, um, and add nourishment to, to the river. The community's environment and everything associated with it. A-class licences uh, give permission to access the, the lower flows. These licences are only a small component of, 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 of all licences and um, there's two ways to manage these licences. is to lift the pumping threshold to lift the level to a level where it doesn't impact these, these full flows. Uh, there's a proposal out there at the moment to, uh, to, for the government, for not a lot of money, to actually buy these licences back from those people who legitimately own these licences. And um, it would be a very, very good move uh, because it will help guarantee these small pulse flow events that are being impacted by extraction and poor policy again. Right. So sort of just to rephrase that, just, you know, Dumb it down. A-class licences for dummies. The river, even when the river is flowing at sort of its lowest level, some people have got a licence to, to pull water out of it yep. um, because of what they're doing? Look, that, that's right. Um, I'll, I'll go back a step. A-class licences traditionally, back when licences were issued, were only for growing feed for the garden and for green, growing essential fodder for their horse plant usually. Yep. So that's what A-classes are. They're only small licences, yep. but the process was bastardised. It was bastardised back in 2012, or actually before that, where A-class licences were commercialised and they were turned into a licence which would could be extracted in huge volumes and be, could be used to grow uh, other crops. So, two options here. We either remove A-class licences from the system, which will protect the low flows, or we revert 
those licenses back to what they were, which were the licenses to, to sustain mum and dad farmers grow their veggies and, and feed their animals. Yeah, definitely. So one of the uh, A class licenses, this is one of the things now, when the drought was on, God, I was freighting grain in from th over 1300 k's away, right, and hay, right. So one of the A-class licences, a, a lot of these fellows up and down the river will be growing fodder. That enabled me to go 50 k's maybe to go on the upper point than instead of 1,300 and something k's. Yep. So what Justin says is they've been bastardised, which I totally agree with him. Yep. So they were actually there for put on permanent plantings. Yep. So for example in 2012, permanent planting, uh, Lucent growing, Lucent was taken off the permanent planting list by, you know, which is, you know, for us, mm. you know, yep. it's just a small thing, yep. but those little things, yep. right, is what's causing this. Yeah. And just in terms of like who owns A-class licenses now, what's the, what's the sort of breakdown? Look, um, yeah, there's a percentage owned by corporate interests, um, and there's a percentage owned by mum and dad farmers. Who, not going to work, but. Um, so a corporate a corporation owning an A-class license is almost a contradiction in terms, isn't it? Well, it is. It's a contradiction to the intent of the original license. And the intent of the original license is important in this context, as, as I explained, because that were the licenses that uh, let people grow fodder for their crops, uh, for their animals, and um, let them put food on the table. Yeah. So, so are A-class licenses tradable? They are, yeah. Right. So A-class license originally, uh, you, had, you weren't allowed any more than 150 mil or 6-inch pump. Right. They had to go directly onto a crop. So your citrus, your permanent plantings. Right. right. Right? It's no longer the case you can put them in storage. Right. You can right. store A-class water. Yeah. Yep. Now, you consider in a storage now, depending on who you talk to, and this is more down Justin's neck of the woods, but my understanding was depending on how good your off-river storage was, you're going to lose 55 or 6 percent, two-thirds to 66 percent in evaporation over a 12-month period. Right. So there's an issue. I've got an issue with, with that, and so should most people. You know, what, we can't afford to lose that anymore. You know, you're talking about an A-class license, right? And you start plucking out of the river when it's you know it's only just, you know, yeah, and then losing it. Yeah, yeah. You know, it just doesn't. Yeah. yeah, it's like yeah, right. One thing I'd like to see done, Chris, is um, talking about it earlier, is to put these natural rock bars back in your system and. Um, Thanks, Bucky. Got a whip or something. <laughs> what I'd like to see happen and what I'd like um, the people listening to, when they're talking to their local member, encourage your local member to push the concept of putting the natural rock bars back into the river. These rock bars were blown out for, by the paddle boat people back around the turn of the century to let them get their paddle boats through. These rock bars were naturally in the river, they naturally provided habitat for, uh, for, for, for the indigenous people prior to European settlement. They provide uh, uh, environmental havens for fish, for, for native plants. So really like to see the native, the, the natural rock bars reinstated to the, to the Barwon Darling because this will return a natural balance to the system and will satisfy uh, a lot of the 
lot of the issues which uh, which which are which are problematic at the moment. What's it What's it like when the river's in flood and full flow around here? What's it like here? What's it like at your place, Stuart? Um, probably a gold mine. <laughs> but look, you just notice so much difference, you know, with the environment. Um, after you get a flood, um, and we know, you know, I've sat there, you know, for an hour at a time and watched water coming up and going down those big, you know, black cracks in the black ground, right? Then come back a couple of hours later and it still hasn't moved anywhere. Um, and it's just it just does everything it just revitalizes um, not only those that are you know on the place just environmentally it revitalizes everything and um, you know and when and especially the, you know the river it's good healthy clean water you know, it might be a bit dirty but it's yeah and when you haven't got that um, for those uh, yeah, I don't know how to describe the stink of it when you're you know when you're you know, showering in water right um, and the best way I can describe it is, um, you know, you're going between, you know, the tour from Moore Canyon, there's been a bit of roadkill on the road for about a week. That's what it smells like. And that's what we've got to shower in. Right. right? You've got salt, you know. You, uh, you can't keep any gardens alive. Your veggie patch usually starts to, you know, um, stock don't do any good on it. Um, you know, and it's just a complete and utter mess. But having that high, you know, that water, that flood and everything else, it is, it's just, it's a gold mine for everybody. Matter of fact, I'll go for one, life, isn't it? Well, it is. I'll go one step further, and most people in the, in the city might understand this. It's like um, they're getting a pink diamond for Christmas. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds glorious. <laughs> so, Menindee Lakes, the water saving project, um, we've been hearing a lot about that. Um, what are your, what's your take on it? They've got it wrong, I think, um, yeah, as I said earlier. Um, and the SDL project has identified a water saving in Menindee. Um, by taking that water out of Menindee, it um, obviously frees up water for other areas. Um, yeah, fundamentally, they really need to reassess it because um, yeah, this area is not going to be not going to put up with being collateral damage for, for another region. We haven't got the population, but what we do have is uh, is an iconic river that has uh, yeah, so many environmentally significant species and, and the people aren't going to put up with it. They're not going to put up with fish kills. They're not going to put up with uh, a dead river for, for 1,400 kilometres for someone else's game. Yeah. We're all Australians. Sharing water is the name of the game. And yeah, let's maintain, let's enhance what we've got in this iconic country. You've both you've both come from families that have been farming this land for decades, if not longer. Um, but I've also heard you both talking quite passionately about the local environment around here, um, which sort of reminds me that um, there's a lot of politicians, there's a lot of media commentators who try to sort of um, uh, either make out that farmers don't care about the environment. Um, or that farmers and environmentalists are always natural enemies. What do you say about that? Well, that's not right, because the, the best farmers and the long-term farmers, such as ourselves, the proof is that we are here. We, we, we have to be environmentalists to, to actually sustainably farm what we have here. And, um, and that's why, that's, that's why we're here. We've got to live hand in hand with nature because we're not going to destroy the resource 
for profit. We're not here to 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 rape and pillage and move move away. We're here for the long term. We're here for our children and our, and our children's children. So farmers must be the best environmentally conscious people to do the job right. And okay, our families have been here for a long time, and I guess that's uh, proof. There are bad farmers out there. There are uh, organisations, individuals who have uh, raped and pillaged the system. So there needs to be a better control of, of who manages our country. Because management of our country is the key. You can be a good irrigator, you can be a sustainable irrigator, you can be a sustainable farmer, you can be a sustainable grazier. You've got to do it right and do it for the future, not for short term. Yeah, I um, well, totally endorse what, what Justin's saying, um, and I think just to put it in perspective, every time this river goes dry, we're stock owners. We might have a bit of food. We're stock owners. Then shift out to somewhere else. We might be trying to spell a paddock. We might, right? Um, and it puts more financial um, hardship and more environmental hardship on what we're trying to do. And when you get out of bed in the morning and think, you know, look, I know this is not right, but how the bloody hell do I get around it? Right? And when you think about it, we're not causing this. Right? We're actually asking, right, to some sort of balance to be put back in there to stop all this happening. You know, this is up and down the river, and I think it goes for the, for the family farm, whether you're an irrigator and everything else. They're getting forced into things, right, that are wrong. And government are doing that now. I don't care what they say, but they're the most irresponsible environmental, you know, as far as land care goes, because they're making decisions for the wrong reason. Right? We need them to make the decision for the right reason. There is no reason why, as Justin said, there cannot be sustainability up and down the river, doesn't matter what you do. Whether you're Indigenous or whether you're a Catholic, whether you're a Mormon or whether you're an irrigator or whether you're a, you know, a grazier, there should be sustainability there. We can't with these decisions being made on political or, you know, or whatever grounds. Right? It's not going to work, and if this darling, Barwon Darling, is a really good testament, we'll see how it doesn't work. Justin Stewart, thanks for taking the time, thanks for talking to us. Um, I think I speak for a lot of people when I say you have our support, and uh, anything we can do to support you, um, just say the word. No, thanks, Chris. Thank and you, I'd... Chris and Jackie. Thank yeah. you very much. It's and important Max. that people understand what we do out here. We're um, yeah, we're a long way from the, from, from the coast. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people on the coast who don't actually appreciate what we do. Mm -hmm. um, if any good thing's going to come out of COVID and what we have now, is that Australians are actually going to come inland people are coming out. And, 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 and understand and appreciate what we've actually got at home. Yeah. So I'd encourage people to, to come out and have a look and understand exactly what we've got and why we can't afford to lose what we've got, this resource. Mm -hmm. Because it is, it is iconic, it's beautiful, it's everything that you don't know. Mm -hmm. So come and have a look and come and appreciate it. We're not geared up for you people, don't worry about that. <laughs> um, and we're not used to it, just not used to it happening. So Maybe not, you'll get a decent road if you get some more Sydney people coming out here. <laughs> not your what's wrong with the road? <laughs> yeah. If you've enjoyed this podcast, can you chip in to help us be the voice for nature? We rely on donations to keep being effective, loud and independent. 
visit nature.org.au.